inside of me makes it hard to be what's come over me. It feels like I'm somebody else. I get overwhelmed in my mind late at night, overthinking everything in my life. Just wondering if I'm doing anything right. All these demons inside start to really come alive. Oh my, I get anxious and I don't. Another person telling me that I should just relax, calm down and take it easy. Everything will be okay. Yeah, sure, 'cause that's what they all say. But oh my. Creeps inside of me, makes it hard to be what's come over me. Feels like I'm somebody else. I get overwhelmed. Good morning, welcome to Kesson. If you are new,、uh, I want to thank you for being here. We play that song at the beginning of every single church service, <laughs> just to make sure everybody feels the same,、uh, the same way. Church is church is tough. It can be. Uh, I just, you know, at Kesson, at Kesson, we just sort of address things and call them out because this isn't a performance; it's not a production. It's just people getting together and being the artists that they are and presenters that they are. And、uh, we got a lot of feedback over the last four or five months that offering kind of felt rushed, and that with people's sensitivity around money and all that stuff, we should explain more. So Pastor Joe and I built sort of this element that we're still rehearsing and working into the service, and I. I don't know if I've had more anxiety for him when he walked out during the、uh, close of worship and everybody had their eyes closed and didn't see him. And Lori's leading, and then he's standing next to her in the microphone, <laughs> trying to take it from her, and she's just praising. And then I don't know if you noticed, but once Dave saw him, he threw a mini tantrum. He was like, <laughs> "I don't know if you saw what I saw." And then we're all in the back afterwards, like, "What was that?" <laughs> and then. Joe and I have been working on it, but Joe and I've done this before because I came from a different church as well. Before I started this one, Joe rolled up on Thursday, very first one, and he just walks out and he's like, "So excited you guys are here! Welcome to New Heights!" <laughs> and everybody just went quiet. And then he's like, "Kesson," and it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful because we're all one church and we're all one family. And the reality is, you try stuff and you tweak it. And, but I just, I especially just like I said, I love Dave's tantrum, which he'll say he didn't throw, but we all saw it. We all saw it. <laughs> and then Lori, like in the moment, and Joe, Joe, like just trying to respectfully steal her mic. It killed me. It killed me. It it gave me anxiety that 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 wasn't helpful. The song you just saw、uh, was—it's called "Overwhelmed." It's by Royal and the Serpent. The one you heard is a YouTube version. It's the Ryan Mac version, and、uh, I heard it at my daughter's performance last week. And、um, they played the song and did some sort of dance stuff to it. And I immediately、uh, wrote it down because I thought it was such a great 
kind of representation for what we're talking about in our series that's not helpful. We're talking about things that, that, that are helpful, that's the green check mark if you haven't put it together, and clearly not helpful, that's the X. But the Christian culture especially feels like it's supposed to have a lot of answers. And so it meets people in their overwhelmness and in their anxiety with usually answers that are less than they should be. And not less because they haven't studied or because they're not articulate or because they don't read the Bible enough, less because so many times what people really want is someone just to sit with them. They just want someone to, to be with them and to, to sit in that vulnerable space. Songs like this sort of echo that internal voice of the generation that we have right now. That's a fresh song. And that's a very specific song, and you might think, well, that's, that's the generation that's up and coming right now, and that's just simply not true. For those of you who uh, grew up with Pat Benatar, she had a song called Anxiety, 1982. It came out. This was one of the lines in the song. It says, anxiety got me on the run. Anxiety, yeah, I just need someone. Anxiety can't get nothing done. Anxiety spoils all the fun. Before that, the Beatles song, Help, came out in 1965. Their lines very clearly say, help me if you can, I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? This is not a generational only thing. This is just what the world has come to. This is just sort of a, a, a human condition that exists that if we, especially as Christ followers, don't recognize that it's a very normal human thing, even with the peace of Christ in your heart, to feel overwhelmed sometimes, to feel anxiety, then we are not going to be able to communicate the message of Christ to anybody, especially when we clearly aren't dealing with our own stuff. So that's today what I wanna talk about is what it would look like for you to hold that vulnerability, to hold that stuff, and to stop pretending it's not everywhere. My wife just uh, had uh, coffee with a lady. Her and her husband run some therapy clinics in town, and they said currently, locally, there are 1,600 people just in their clinics waiting for therapy. We need to stop pretending it's not a real thing. We need to stop pretending that we have it figured out, and we need to recognize that this is actually the very essence of where the Holy Spirit does his work. But it has to start with you. It has to start with you being willing to sit in this spot and to be authentic with what it is that brings you anxiety and would be helpful and isn't helpful. I want to use an ancient story. Uh, it's a well-known story. It's the story of Job. Job was a, he was a righteous man. He was uh, a man who did the best he could to live before his God and, and raise his family and be the husband he was supposed to. It describes him in Job 1.1. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. It's a good description, about as good an introduction as just about anybody in the Bible. And then it says that Job experiences great loss. He loses everything you can lose from uh, his family to his health to just about his faith. And he is struggling to try to come to grips with what is happening in his life. And like all people who have healthy, if you will, relationships, his friends roll in. And they come and they sit with him. His friends' names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I don't know why we're not still using those names. Those are biblical sound names. You got a lot of Daniels and Matthews, but I have never met a Zophar. I'd like to. There might be a reason why we don't use those names. It's because they're not, not that good of friends. They stay with Job in silence, doing everything they can to just support him. And then they can't stand it anymore. And then from chapter 4 to chapter 25, they start to give him advice. 
advice based on their experiences, advice based on what they know of God, advice based on how the world around them has taught them to walk these sort of things out. Every one of them is trying to give answers to Job around what is happening. They give speeches, and these speeches include typical inaccuracies like we give many speeches to our friends still today around how they should improve their life and why things are going wrong. Their overarching belief was that Job was suffering because he had done something wrong. As a result, they repeatedly encouraged Job to admit his wrong and repent so that God would bless him again. Just real quick, we are not a prosperity gospel teaching church, so I'm just gonna let you know right now, you don't have cancer because you did something wrong. That's not how the gospel works. You are not being graded every day with a thumbs up and a thumbs down by some big cosmic being in the sky who just ignores you and judges every situation that you live in. It's just not true. And I'm so sorry if you were raised in a belief system like that or more likely you had a friend that came in and tried to help you who gave you that same advice because it's still very prevalent still today. God speaks against this, but Job speaks against it first. Says a lot about him. He recognized they were, they were not willing to hold his stuff, to sit with him in the vulnerability that he was offering. Until eventually in Job 16, one and two, he says, then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. And then he says this line, miserable comforters are you all. It's beautiful, it's epic. It's a conversation some of you should have with the people in your lives that aren't comforting you well and are actually pulling you away from understanding how and who God really is. Be careful who you take advice from. God himself speaks against this and clearly agrees with Job. He says in Job 42, seven, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. These three men immediately respond with praise by the way. Sometimes it's really beneficial for you to tell your friends, hey, shut up. You're running your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. You, by the way, don't have any of the same character in your life. So just shut your mouth and sit with me in my stuff. Sometimes those friends might go, that seems scarier than, than what I'm doing, but I'm gonna do it. And you'll know you have a good friend. Or they'll be like, well, if you're not willing to take my advice, I've heard this before, then I have no purpose here. And I'm like, exactly, bye-bye. I don't need people to have a purpose more than holding my stuff. I'm not here to use you. And frankly, if you wanna be used, then all you're really here to do is use me. I just wanna sit with people in the stuff. And that's what Job wants as well. Job eventually, alone, dismissing these, these people full of bad advice, these people who were not helpful, eventually decides he's gonna come full force at his God. He decides he's gonna bring it all. He's gonna do it unabashed. This is what he says, and there's a tiny bit of sarcasm in the verse, so I think you gotta read it that way. Job 3, verse 20 and 26. He says, why is light given to him who suffers? Uh, why is life given to those who feel sad in their soul? They wait for death, but there is none. They dig for it more than for hidden riches. They are filled with much joy and are glad when they find the grave. Hey, why is light? given to a man whose way is hidden and around whom God has built a wall. For I cry inside myself in front of my food. How many of y'all done that over a carton of ice cream? Just raise your hands. You, you, you know you have. Yours might've been because it's too many calories or you're just sad because you eat or you're eat, you eat because you're sad. You don't know. 
But it's a profound biblical concept. Then he goes on. My cries pour out like water. What I was afraid of has come upon me. That's some anxious stuff. What I was afraid of has come upon me. What filled me with fear has happened. I am not at rest and I am not quiet. I have no rest but only trouble. This, this is a biblical letter to God that uh, is dangerous. This is a human being fully human before his God and exposing who and what he was. This was, because it's a little earlier than when his friends decided to respond, what they were rebuking. And then eventually Job says, shut up. And God says to those friends, shut up. And all of a sudden Job's message gets into God's presence, if you will. God's presence is there, but it, it's like as if God clears the way so Job can feel it happening. And then it says God shows up. And he doesn't show up because he wasn't there, but he shows up in a way that tossles Job's hair and it says a whirlwind shows up and surrounds him. He feels God, whether it's the, the sting of the sand or the, the noise or the sound or the, the warm air, whatever it is, Job's in the midst of this whirlwind and God decides to respond. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to know that God wants to do that. It's a beautiful thing to know that God wants to meet us there. But sometimes it can be a little scary. Chapter 38, verse one, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it Burst open from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And verse after verse after verse, God asked these giant unanswerable questions in the midst of the world when Joe listened to God's response and felt his presence until he uttered this, these, just these few sentences. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. It seems something in God's presence has changed Job's heart. It's changed Job's posture. Now, I want to give you, this is really important for those of you that are getting excited about reading scripture and excited about doing more than just listening to people like me talk. Messages are important, church weekends are important, services are important, but they're not the most important. The most important is you spending time with the Holy Spirit and reading this book and spending time in it. But here's the thing you need to understand. When you read passages like this, God's response to Job, what people do is make that a prescription for all humanity. When you suffer, this is how God responds. No, when Job suffered, that's how God responded. It was custom to Job, and it's beautiful to Job, and it meant something to Job. So it changed Job's posture. It made him somehow different than he was when he started off, was where is light? 
God's whirlwind shows up. God speaks words for Job, custom, intimate words for Job. And suddenly, suddenly Job is in that phrase. He answers, I lay my hand on my mouth. Behold, I am of small account. It was specific to him. Now, it doesn't mean that those words don't minister to you. But what it does mean is that when you spend time with God in the whirlwind of the stuff you're dealing with, he will build something specific to you. Stop reading this stuff and applying it to every single person you've ever met and then saying, Yep, nope. Our God is way bigger than that. And you and I don't get to put him in these little boxes. Now, does it speak to his character? Is it, is it a contradiction to how he speaks in other verses? No, but when you're suffering, don't all of a sudden go, well, here, clearly, this is what God thinks of people who suffer. He asks them, where were you when I built the ocean? For Job, bro. And it's beautiful for Job. It worked for Job. It doesn't mean that that's for you. But you wouldn't know because all you do is listen to podcasts and judge people. I already got a solid nine o'clock recorded, so this one... (laughs) This one's going off the rails. It's important for you to see that you serve a God who is alive. And just because I'm on stage with a microphone under lights or because somebody's got a million followers doesn't mean that's how God wants to meet you. But what it does mean is he shows up in whirlwinds and sometimes it feels beautiful and eloquent and you want to post to everybody about it. Oh, God showed up. He tousled my hair, the warmth of his wind. And sometimes it is like sand in your teeth and eyes. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's both. Your job is to sit long enough in your vulnerability offering to see what God wants to bring. And your job is to recognize that he wants to receive your vulnerability. He didn't even show up with advice. He said, tell your friends to shut up. Job said, then you deal with it. Then God said, here I am. He didn't say, here's what we're gonna do. Here's the plan. Here's how you're gonna get out. Here's how I'm gonna bless you. No, he just said, here I am. I'm the one who built oceans. Maybe Job had a beautiful heart for the ocean. Maybe his whole life, maybe his mother sat him by the ocean and said, this is the power of God. You don't know. And then God said, I'm the one who built the ocean and everything flooded open in Job. And he's like, you've always been there. You've always been there. This is what we do. We make scripture small so that it can be helpful to people. But we don't allow it to speak to us and just sit inside the whirlwind. God held Job's vulnerability and it changed Job's heart forever. See, this is the great Christian paradox. The world teaches us that we are supposed to jump in and fix each other's problems all while trying to work through our own problems without help from someone else. We don't work on our own stuff. (laughs) We work on everybody else's stuff. This has to stop if we wanna be helpful if we wanna be basic brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not, by the way, a one-off story pattern in the Bible. You think about Jesus on his uh, mission to change the world, to be the presence of God incarnate, and he's rolling around, and they wanna schedule meetings with people who matter, people who are important, people in the church, people in the leadership. They want him to accomplish this thing, and then all of a sudden, Jesus rolls through town and sees a little short scoundrel that's ripped everybody off in town, probably because he's brilliant. His name's Zacchaeus but he wasn't parented well. <laughs> we don't know. Everybody has those kids, right? Those brilliant kids. You're like, you are so brilliant, but I gotta watch you close. 
Zacchaeus was one of those kids. He's short, he knows. He climbs up a pole to see Jesus up a tree. He sees Jesus and Jesus stops the whole parade and he's like, hey, bro, we're going to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus is like, okay. All we know is they went in and had dinner. This is all we know, probably for a few hours, two, three hours. And Zacchaeus brought all his friends into the presence of Jesus around the table. So many nasty people that the local religious people were like, this is crazy. Are you seeing so-and-so walk into so, are you, look at this. This is a dinner of people who shouldn't be at a dinner with the Messiah. This is what this is. We don't even know what happened. There's no record. The verses just go along that Jesus had dinner with Zacchaeus. And then all of a sudden, once again, the presence of God, the whirlwind of God does something to Zacchaeus' heart. And all of a sudden, he responds different than he was. It says, verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Like, what? What kind of dinner is this? What happened at dinner for Zacchaeus to go, I gotta change something. What kind of conversation? What kind of manipulation? I think he was a sharp dude. I think he tried to angle Jesus the whole time. And I think Jesus sometimes let him and then snagged him by the throat from behind. That's how Jesus ministers to me, by the way. Sometimes I'm like, I got around you. You didn't see this. And Jesus is like, whoop. It's just beautiful. It changed his heart. He says, God, I want to change who I am down to my finances. It changed who I am down to my integrity, down to my character. And Jesus himself recognized it. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, and I think there should be a little asterisk that said Jesus smiled right here. We need more Jesus smiled verses. Because I think Jesus looked at people, looked around, and knew he was quoting scripture for scripture. And I think he smiled and said, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He says, this is what I do. I sit in places I shouldn't with people that bring their whole selves. I think Zacchaeus brought his whole self, his whole game. I think he tried to do everything that he could, but he was willing to invite Jesus to his table. He was willing to sit in the whirlwind of his presence. And even better yet, he was willing to invite friends. Like he wasn't embarrassed of all the people everybody else was embarrassed about. I mean, imagine the people who rolled in with him. These people, he would have, Jesus, it would have been just profound to watch this dinner as the Holy Spirit moved inside that, that wave, tossed everybody's hair, and Zacchaeus stands up, leader of them all, and says, I got to do different. This is what it means to walk with God. To realize that he wants to have relationship with you, but it's going to feel whirlwindy. And you can bring anybody you want, especially if you can bring yourself. He will meet it, he will affect it, and it will change who you are. Jesus was teaching something profound. He was teaching that we want to give answers, but our job is to give an example. He's teaching that your words, just I'm just going to be honest, your words in this emotional, spiritual economy right now that we all live in, your words matter less than your face and your eyes and your actions. And you can tell somebody, God bless, but they know what you're really telling them. They can feel it. This, this is the world that we live in and this is supposed to be how we're trained that's what the series is about. It's not only about offering your vulnerability, by the way. 
Jesus was also teaching us that he had some to give as well. This is why at inopportune times all throughout his ministry, he would remind people he's going to the cross. It's like the worst ending to a sentence ever. Like, I love the miracle. The movement's so exciting. I mean, you guys are doing great. You three disciples rocking it. This is so awesome. By the way, I'm going to die on a cross here in a little while. And he offers this vulnerability to them. And they do not hold it well. They're like, uh, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, look at all this movement. Look at all these people. You work miracles. Jesus is like, yeah, yep, I do. Two weeks later, out fishing. By the way, I just want to remind you guys, what a beautiful day. Beautiful sunset. I love the, the fish. You're doing a great job. Hard work, hard work. Great job, great job. Uh, by the way, quick reminder, I'm going to be going to the cross. Here's my vulnerability. They're like, no, stop doing that to me. He's teaching them what they're supposed to be doing for each other by doing it themselves. He's being an example. Last week, I said that our job is to be like that, to be like Jesus. This means our job is to hold the vulnerability of another, not necessarily to always fix it, but so they can see it better for themselves. This is very, very important. If you take away nothing from this message, this is, this is a gift for you. This right here, this ability or lack of ability to hold another person's vulnerability and not fix it is why so many of you don't have very many friends. I hear all the time from people how they're lonely, how they don't have any friends. And primarily when I sit with them and I ask big questions, and this goes for me as well, what I find out is they don't have friends because they don't offer anything vulnerable to other people. And usually for valid reasons, because I offered it to this person or this community or this group and it was shattered, they got me. We've preached on this before. Jesus was always godable. People got him all the time. People betrayed him. People tricked him. People manipulated him. And he knew everything. And he still loved anyways. So because of your hurt, because of your story, because of your mess, doesn't give you an excuse or me not to be vulnerable with other people. When I offer my vulnerability to other people, they have a choice whether they want to hold that with me and not fix it or not. But if I can build a community of friends that can do that for me and me for them, then I can have true intimacy and relationship like I'm supposed to have with God and with all of you. Some of you have offered vulnerability and it's been hurt. Some of you uh, just purely don't offer any vulnerability at all. And you're miserable about holding other people's vulnerability because it's scary. So you like love hanging out. You love partying, you love high-fiving at church and worshiping together. But then when someone's like, man, my marriage is struggling, you're like, you should call Danny. <laughs> As if I have answers. All I do is sit with people and hold their vulnerability and not fix it. You can do that as well, but you have to own the fact that you have woundings that don't allow you to be vulnerable. And if you can't, then stop preaching to everybody this Jesus that you love because he was willing to be vulnerable headed to a cross, naked, broken before the world so that he could have intimate relationships connected with other people. And you're not willing to hold another friend without trying to give them answers and advice that you know you wouldn't follow. And frankly, so do they. This is why we're alone. This is why this is so important for you. Your key to lasting friendships, to restoring friendships, to healthier marriages with your children, healthy marriages with your spouses and relationships with your children is all lying inside your ability to be vulnerable. And it's not easy and I'm not pretending it is, but I think it's important that you leave here knowing that. That's what you're facing. I know it has been for me. 
That's our job, to hold other people's vulnerability without fixing it. I experienced this firsthand when we did our men's night last Sunday night. Last Sunday night, we had uh, well over 100 men gather here. They did worship, which I think they expected. They did food, which I think they expected. And then they broke into small groups. They did not expect that. We told them, but for some reason, anything vulnerable, guys are like, no, no, I'll be fine. I heard there's pulled pork, right? It's just, and then we stuck them in groups of like 10 and 12. And every single group leader that I talked to afterwards said, I cannot believe how vulnerable these guys were. Because we have courageous men that want different. I wanna, just a little push. We have that again tonight. If you wanna come tonight uh, and you haven't been, please do. It's 10 bucks, just covers food. Come, if you came last time and you wanna bring a friend, listen, it's half off. Bring a friend, pay for them. It's another five bucks. You pay for your friend. We wanna fill this place with men who are willing to be vulnerable and be connected. But it's a beautiful and scary thing. I know firsthand. My journey into vulnerability started with therapy. About six years ago, uh, I, uh, my wife said, basically, go to therapy or move out. That's what it felt like. <laughs> she's mean. She's mean. She, she's short, but she's mean. So, um, so I, I, I did. I didn't want to be there uh, for the first probably year and a half. I didn't want to be there. And inside my therapist's office, the problem I had wasn't that he wasn't a good therapist. It's that I wasn't willing to offer any vulnerability or hold, frankly, any of his. Eventually, I begin to get traction. I begin to, to connect differently to my story, to my spirituality, to my spouse, to my children, and eventually to you guys. And I shared one Sunday, quite vulnerably, uh, that I was in therapy. It did not go well. See, nobody wants to tell their friends, you should come to our church, our pastor's in therapy. <laughs> nobody wants that. That's not the role I'm supposed to play, but I felt like it was most authentic for me to share it, so I did. And I realize now why it was so uncomfortable. It's because me sharing with you that I'm in therapy kind of forces you to hold some of my vulnerability, which then forces you to look at your own vulnerability. And everybody in the room feels awkward. But I don't know if awkward is necessarily always bad. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes awkward is really, really important. And so what I wanna do is I wanna give you an opportunity with eyes wide open this time to receive some of my vulnerability. Now this is gonna hit different people in the room differently. Some of you are gonna be like, I can't believe this is happening. Others of you, after doing two services, are gonna be like, please make it stop, please make it stop, please make it stop. I had a lot of those. And some of you are gonna be like, what is this? It's me being vulnerable. I'm just gonna ask you to hold it. And then we'll evaluate how it makes you feel and why I think it's important and helpful. Most of you know, uh, in 2019, my father passed away after complications from heart surgery. Now, the heart surgery was, was uh, something he had to go through in order to actually have a colon surgery because he was diagnosed with colon cancer just about a month before the heart surgery, and they were worried about his heart and the procedure uh, of the colon cancer surgery. So he had to have that surgery. Now, my grandfather, on the opposite side of the family, my mother's father, um, died of colon cancer. So my wife, putting this all together over the last few years, being the daughter of a physician, uh, has, has quite rudely been asking me to go and do something about it. Uh, all the time, pestering, pestering, pestering. It wasn't helpful for our marriage, it wasn't encouraging. I didn't feel good about it, but she wouldn't stop. It's something we're working on. <laughs> I told you, you're gonna hold all that vulnerability. A few months ago, 
my younger sister, three years younger than me, called and said, hey, I have some news for you. Um, I was just diagnosed with colon cancer. She's three years younger than me. She's doing well. She's doing her chemo and radiation uh, uh, stuff right now. And uh, she's doing really well. I want to thank everybody on the prayer team for praying for her. And uh, things are looking up. My wife then leveraged this and manipulated me to go do something about, about this possible colon cancer. But see, the reason I didn't want to do it is in order to check for colon cancer, you have to have a colonoscopy. Not interested. If you don't know what a colonoscopy is, I'll go ahead and just put up a quick image. This, this is your colon. And this is a four foot flashlight. Not a good time. Not a fun Tuesday. I called my doctor, because of my mean wife, and I said, hey look, um, here's what's going on. My grandfather, my father, and my sister, and before I could even finish explaining about the uh, sister, he said, Danny, we've got you scheduled for a colonoscopy in 12 days. <laughs> I said, well, I, I, you know, uh, he says, we'll see you there, man. Good call. Glad you're coming in. <laughs> the day of the procedure came, and I asked my wife, I said, you're going to come with me, right? And she's like, absolutely. I said, you're, gonna, you're not going to leave me, right? I mean, this is, this is really exposing. She goes, I would never leave you. I walk in. They sign the forms. They look at her, and they're like, ma'am, you know you got to go, right? She's like, I do. She took the keys and left. <laughs> left. I just sat there. She just left because she knew without her I wasn't going through this. Just me and this lady. She goes, all right, Danny, you're going to go upstairs. You're going to meet some folks. They're going to walk you through what happens next. I said, okay. I decided right then and there I'm just going to turn off my personality. See, I have a problem when I get nervous. I try to connect. I try to figure out relationally who's where, and I become this guy. And so I was like, not doing that. I'm going to be a patient. This is going to be clinical, okay? I scheduled it on purpose on the other side of the river so I would not bump into any of you. <laughs> How terrible would that be just before they knock you out for a colonoscopy to have somebody go, hey, by the way, great service on Sunday. <laughs> right? Terrible. I walk up there. Now, here's what I'm prepped for. I'm going to receive a grandfatherly uh, uh, a doctor who's going to grab me by the hand, encourage me, tell me I did the right thing. We're going to get this thing knocked out. Instead, as I'm in the waiting room, a beautiful 30-ish year old nurse walks out. And I was like, no, 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 no. And she goes, Danny, I'm in a room with nothing but 70-year-olds. And I was like, Mm-mm, nope. Guess we're not doing this today. She says, Danny, I knew I was going to have to go home to my mean wife or this nurse, so I chose the nurse. So I stood up. I stood up, and I said, yeah. And she looks at me. She looks at the paperwork, and she looks at me, and she looks at the paperwork, and she goes, are you here for a colonoscopy? I go, yeah. She goes, okay. We walk back to the room, and there's nothing but, but older folks and all these different kind of stalls, and I, I, I get mine. And she goes, like, here's the deal. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. I need you to put on this very thin nightgown and this pair of socks. Make sure you don't tie it in the back because we'll need to open that thing. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I'm trying to be very cold, very clinical. She's like, she's like, why are you here? I said, I have a mean wife. She started laughing. I started laughing. I felt better. I didn't want to feel better. I don't want to connect with this person. She says, I'm going to step out for a second. Go ahead and let you get undressed and lay in the very thin sheet with the big goofy socks. I said, great, great. She goes, you can keep your glasses on. I said, who cares? Ooh, I have glasses on. I feel so safe and professional. 
She leaves, shuts the curtain. I get undressed. It takes me like two minutes, right? I'm in, I'm, I'm in the thing. And all I hear is like, like these, these young women outside the curtain talking about who gets to scope today. They're so excited. Are you scoping today? Doctor said, I might get to scope today. You scoped last Thursday. That's not fair. I'm like, who does this job and why? Eventually she can tell there's no more noise in the room. So she comes over. She says, Danny, are you ready? I said, yeah. She opens it up. She goes, wow, you're so fast. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, normally people are a lot older. We got to help them sometimes get undressed, get out of their wheelchairs, get into bed. You're so fast. I mean, I think you got time to meet the team. I said, meet the team? We're going for a picnic? What's happening? She laughs. Ha, ha, ha. They'll love you. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Don't do it. Don't connect. Sure enough. Two other girls roll in, all of them about 30 years old, so excited because they heard about me. Ooh, young bum, let's do it. This is exciting. <laughs> right? They're like, all right, let's get in there. And they're introducing me to themselves, telling me their stories. I'm like, this is the guy I was telling you about with the mean wife, right? It's so funny, so funny. Right? They leave. They say, hey, let's grab the doctor. We want to make sure she meets you. <laughs> Love it. My doctor rolls in. She's 48 years old. She says, I hear you're nervous about today. I said, well, I'm a little nervous. Yeah, I heard what you're going to do to me. She goes, don't even worry about it. The camera's only as big as my finger. I'm like, you got big old fingers, though. I'm not. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like this at all. She grabs my hand. She goes, you're going to do great. And with your family history, we are all so proud of you here. Right? And then they all did a pyramid because they're like cheerleaders. So it was, they were so excited. They decide just before to push me back to introduce me to my anesthesiologist. And guess what? He's like a 65-year-old man. He's got vintage silver hair. I'm like, yes. Okay, guy in the room I can cling to, I can bond with. He walks in. He goes, Danny, I'm glad you're here. And Dr. Colon, and I'm here to help you and all these other things. And I'm like, yes, okay, I'm feeling better, feeling better. And, he, and I said, so you're, you're in the room with me? He goes, no, no, I oversee all these procedures. I have junior anesthesiologists, anesthesiologists that are going to oversee you. Matter of fact, here's Claire right now. Claire rolls in. She's like 24 years old. She's literally double dutching. She's so excited. She's like, Danny, woo, we're going to do this thing today. Uh, this is crazy. They roll me into the procedure room, me and four women. They're talking. They're lively. They're excited. Then they say, get on your side. I was like, I don't want to. I'm good. Sorry, Danny, you need to get on your side. I get on my side. I've got my IV. They're about to put me to sleep. They say, please place your hands here. And one of the nurses sees my knuckle tattoos. And she says, oh, your knuckle tattoo, it says a more. What's that about? Everybody stops their work. Everybody in the whole room. Like, what's he going <laughs> This is, this is the truth. I said, yeah, it means, it means a more, or yeah, it means love because my wife's Hispanic. And they all go, oh, and right then Claire leans over and she goes, night, night time. Ah! It's the worst nightmare of my life. I woke up with a dude I never met. That's never happened to me. <laughs> it's the truth. It never happened. He's like, Danny, time to go. I said, yeah, it's time to go. He put my clothes on, pushed me out. My wife's waiting in the car. Like, like, you know, like she didn't leave me three and a half hours earlier. I'm a little pouty, like Dave was. A little, a little me. Go home, go to sleep. Long story short, I get a letter from my doctor. And guess what? They found stuff that they were so happy to remove that they said pretty much, pretty much would guarantee that if I hadn't gone in for the procedure, I would have had eventually colon cancer. 
I share the whole story, the whole vulnerable, messy story for only really one reason. If I hadn't have held my sister's vulnerability and then went and reflected upon my own, I would have not then went and sat with other people that were great at holding my vulnerability. I had a great team, I had a great crew. As a matter of fact, the bottom of the letter said that because of my family history and how much they found, they're so excited that normally you have to go in every five years. Guess what Danny gets to do? Every year, folks, every year! Stoked! But you know what? There's a group of people that are good at holding the vulnerability and doing their job. We as Christians, okay, we are supposed to be people who are good at holding other people's emotional and spiritual vulnerability. When people are afraid, when people start to gimmick, when people start to do whatever they do, we're supposed to be like, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. But listen, based on the history of humanity, the history of what it means to be a human, you probably need this. Because without it, there's gonna be stuff in your life that eventually is gonna grow into your heart that's gonna cause you to be friendless or lonely or dark or sad or all the different things that are all sometimes very appropriate for us to feel but not feel alone. There's nothing I can do about my genetics, but there is something I can do about my willingness to be vulnerable. There's nothing you can do about being a human who deals with all this stuff, but there is something you can do about being vulnerable. You can step into the whirlwind of relationship with God. You can receive his presence and whatever's custom for you. And then you can first and foremost go offer people that are in your life some of your vulnerability. People that aren't, gonna just, that aren't just gonna give you answers but are just gonna sit inside your presence with your story and then you can be that to other people. This is what Christians are called to do. You don't have to be fully versed in scripture. You have to be fully versed in vulnerability if you wanna move forward with the message of Jesus because that's exactly what he did. This week, I'm gonna close this message with a quick story. I received a beautiful email from someone who doesn't attend this church. I asked her permission to share it. It was a colorful email full of ex- expletives that uh, she was very confident that, uh, that, that uh, she could share because of some of the culture that I think has been created here at Kesed, but I'm not gonna read it with those expletives. I'm just gonna leave that piece out. The email starts off this way. It says, hello, Danny. I'm not sure why I am compelled to write you. This happens from time to time when I hear someone who shares a Christian type of message in a way that is alternative to what I was raised with. I am devoted to the idea that I am not a Christian, nor could I ever be, because I just cannot believe that Christ is the one and only way to salvation, which in my terms means getting to heaven. This is someone offering their vulnerability to a pastor, to a Christ follower, saying this is who I am. Now, my job is not to debate with her at this point. My job is just to offer a sit down, to offer connection, to hold that vulnerability because she's doing the courageous things that most of us as Christians don't do in the first place. This is the beauty of inviting the marginalized and the folks who don't fit. They kind of acclimate the rest of us into how real life works, not how church works. That's why we wanna fill the room with messy people. That's why once you realize you're a messy person, even if you follow Christ for 30 years, you're gonna fit in just fine. It's those of you who think, well, I'm in church. Life is buttoned up. Jesus is definitely coming to my house for dinner. And then he rolls into the dude in the back row that reeks of alcohol, Zacchaeus, and you're like, no, 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 no. That's not where Jesus goes to dinner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it is. This is how we're supposed to build this community, like this woman. She goes on to say, 
you may want to know where I met you from. I heard about you first from some people I used to go to concerts with. Then, she said, eventually from people I care about a lot, my therapist and my tattoo artist. (laughs) Two of my favorite groups of people. That's who she heard about this community from. She goes on to share a bit of her story and more and more of her vulnerability. And then she says this. She says, Danny, I believe there is a magic that is happening in the Christian world that supports my idea that somewhere, somehow, we got it wrong in the churches of days gone past. I feel a lot of Jesus in that line. Does anybody else feel a little bit of Jesus in that line? But that can't be because this person doesn't even believe in Jesus. Somebody should help her, right? No, 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 ma'am. You got it wrong. It's about church attendance. It's about small group. It's about Bible study. All beautiful things. By the way, not super helpful in a response like this. She finishes the email with maybe one of the most beautiful lines, closing an email I've received in a while. Due to the expletives, And the language, she says, one last thing. If swearing offends you, I do apologize. My higher power doesn't really care what words I use. It's a deal we have. I've given up a lot in this life, and for now, salt and swearing are not going to be one of those things. (laughs) That's why the name of this message is Salt and Swearing. See, this is a person who is who she is. And she has found her way into a space where she can sit in the whirlwind of God's presence And she can allow the the warmth and the wind and the tossle of the hair and also the sand in her teeth and eyes. She can sit in both and be authentic about the fact I'm not that because I know what that represents. But it, it sure seems like God is that, but I can't bring the two together. And I'm like, join the club. And she's a person who's living out what we're supposed to be doing. She's a teacher of us. Who are you teaching to be vulnerable? Your spouse, your kids, people at work. Where are you going that you don't want to go? Like, I don't want to go to that procedure or share with you that stuff. I don't want that in my life. But I refuse to live out my story performing, pretending. I refuse not to just be human. This is why the Joe and Dave stuff and, and Joe trying to take Lori's mic the whole, the whole time while she's still singing and worshiping. I love it. I love it. This is what we do. We get to be people with people. And when we're people with people, then the Holy Spirit gets to be this beautiful thing and get all the credit for everything we do. And suddenly we get to be like him, helpful. You don't have to give up salt and swearing to be a Christian. You can find Jesus as a ther- in a therapy office or a tattoo chair. He seems to be working with people that nobody else wants to work with. So why don't you just become somebody like that? Be vulnerable. Receive vulnerability. Be a better friend before you demand other people are friends to you. Be a better spouse before you demand your spouse is better for you. Be honest about your weaknesses and about the way God assured those up. Love viciously. Protect the marginalized and the weak. Stand up, rally around. Connect with your God in the midst of the whirlwind, whether it's sand in your eyes or wind in your hair and let people see it.
if we can do that, then when we give this whole thing away to all of those back in that room, when we're fully forgotten and God is remembered through the next generation that is stronger, better, and more intimately connected to him than us, we will have succeeded in moving this kingdom forward and joining all of those before us that nobody knows. The vulnerable, the least, the less, the quiet, the unheard, the weak, the swindlers, the manipulators. But it's time for us to do our job better. But it has to start with you being willing to sit in here and give up what you're supposed to so that God can customize a message just for you. I love this church. I love this community. I wouldn't have it any other way. You're a bunch of messy misfits. And I'm so excited to to see what God does with it. Amen? Would you stand? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this room, for every person here, for the stories, for the way you're working, for the way you're building, for what you're lifting. Thank you, Lord, that you are meeting us in the midst of whatever it is we're dealing with, that you see it, that you aren't leaving, that you understand the questioning and the doubt and the anxiety and the overwhelmness. Lord, I lift up everything going on in this world. I I lift up the situation, God, in Ukraine. I lift up the, the situations around the globe we don't even know about, the things going on in our very city. Lord, you are the one who can provide so we are just hopeful in that way. Use us, Lord. Use our messy lives. Use our messy stories. Thank you for the way that you build into us. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for holding my vulnerability. I'll see you next week.